0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Collective. We have another awesome show for you today. Morning, boys. James, Seb, thanks for joining us. How's that great. microphone? Great chat. Oh, really good. Right? It's good. Nice <laughs> check, though. <I> like <laughs> uh, And And the, the one thing I do want to remind everybody also, not only for me to re- speak into my mic, but to like and subscribe. Make sure you hit the notification bell and all that good stuff so that we can email you every morning be like yo come listen what's up how's it going <laughs> so um any any thoughts any anything burning on the top of you guys's minds before we dive into a, a topic
1: i got one so yeah. i went i went around the world with the, the uh, human performance project we did a thing called 7x Oh yeah, that little thing that where you just like around all over the place, man.
2: That was going to be my punchline because, like, I was going to say, "Yeah, there's nothing really to talk about this morning (laughs) other than what was it? What was it again? Seven (laughs) X or something?"
1: Yes, James, tell us about it. Let's hear. So, well, well, I'll get to it. I'll get to the whole point in a minute. We can talk about it, but the uh, the whole purpose was to simulate. at the and a uh, critical event in the fire service law enforcement that would you know be multiple days and break down a warfighter a police officer a firefighter um, and then how do we rebuild them again well they did such a good job i think we slept on average about four hours a night for 10 days so when we got back here and then we had the time change i was still running on fumes so i want to start by apologizing for no showing last time i was supposed to be on here all good <laughs> all good <laughs>
3: You know, when on you that said, note,
2: I got yeah. a question for you, James, because right now, just as you were talking, what I was seeing is refreshed James. And when you had finished 7X, you'd put up a couple of videos a couple of days in a row or whatever, and you looked less refreshed, James. <laughs> and so um, however you want to categorize it, you look rough, man. When you came off of 7X, you look like you were obviously not recovered you you were showing age in your face that you're not showing now and and i know that sounds cruel and unusual but i mean haven't we all like if you get put through the grinder for a long time you age physically visually Mm -hmm. until you can recover and then look a little bit more like your quote-unquote self and so you do look better now so you must have been applying some of that seven X recovery protocol, Harry Potter one magic, in order to be looking like you are right now. So, are you going to? Do you have any early sort of observations on what has helped you kind of um, not remarkably look younger, but uh, look like you're recovered anyway? What 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 uh, what have you done that you've found is the most powerful? So,
1: I think firstly going back to. The takeaways from the actual event itself the sleep deprivation was obvious I mean you know we all know we've been in professions where mentally your cognition starts to decline you know people are getting more on edge getting more emotional you know making mistakes etc etc so that was a very evident one but what was really interesting we had a group of so there was a couple of us that were firefighter paramedics Then a lot of them were special operations special forces um, war fighters there were some of the most elite base jumper skydivers in the planet on this team. Um, some of the most elite men slash marathon runners. And then we had the, what we call the VIPs, which are all the people that paid to come along, who were all high performers in the business world, clearly, to be able to afford you know, the, the seats that helped fund this whole project. But what was fascinating was... We were all from different backgrounds, but the only thing that was really unifying was the why. Like, There's this this, this horrendous thing, this mental health epidemic that we're all seeing. We're all losing people that we adore. And that was the real thing. That was the, the nucleus. So when things went wrong and everything that could go wrong, did go wrong. If you think about you get a bunch of strangers, you put them all in a room, you apply lots of pressure. That's the algebraic equation for reality television. Then you eat your popcorn while they tear each other apart. This had the polar opposite. So the real takeaway was if you all have a bunch of people and you have a sense of purpose and you know what your why is and you apply pressure, it pulls people together. And on the second last day we're in Cartagena, I did a little talk to everyone and just said, hey, because a lot of these people hadn't been in uniform just as a heads up, like you're going to have almost like a a grieving period when we all go our separate ways again. And the number of people that reached out to me after saying I didn't really understand what you meant till I got home. And that is no different than us transitioning out the the fire service or the military or an injury or being fired or promotion to a desk. Um, So it was really interesting before we get to the recovery side. That's some kind of food for conversation there. of Some of the observations that I made. Should should we uh, should we just end the podcast now? Yeah, I mean, we're
2: not quite six minutes in, but <laughs> I, I feel like we could kind of cut this one a bit earlier
0: today. No. And check, good to go. <laughs> yeah, uh, Seb or or Sean, mm-hmm. any, any thoughts on that? Any questions for for James on what he just went over? Anything?
3: Yeah, no, I don't have any questions per se. I mean, I'd have I'd love to have a two hour conversation about it, but one of the oh, things yeah. that's Absolutely undeniable is how adversity with a common goal brings you together. I mean, we've all experienced that at at various levels, but I think what's even more powerful, if if you start doing this with people that have never experienced it, then they can go out and kind of proliferate it a bit because it's a very small niche of people that actually experience this. And I truly believe that it would benefit absolutely everyone you know, on on such a, a meaningful level. And so I just love that people are coming in from all walks of life and taking this on. And it's, you know, it's, it's great. It's amazing.
0: It's pretty, pretty outstanding.
2: It is. And it's nearly what I spent, not quite a full hour this morning talking about, but it was about adversity. It was bounced off of the topic of Mark Omrod uh, yesterday over on the collective or here at the collective uh, yesterday. And so that conversation morphed into, Go chase adversity, which morphed into nobody's got any excuses, which morphed into go prioritize, which morphed into, oh, you don't have enough time, make some time, which morphed into. And so most of the conversation was about not trying to get people off the couch, but encourage others, even myself to just like dial it up a touch more, seek extra adversity. That's, that's the real magic. And, and it, I'm, I'm used to it. We're all used to adversity. We can go do it by ourselves in the forest with no eyeballs on us. It's no big deal. But there's a lot of people out there that that haven't ever got used to just really getting with the grind in absence of any eyes on them. Sometimes people need to feel like they're part of something, to your point, James, which will, like, encourage them to, like, put their shoulders back, their chest out and feel like they've got that extra little bit of juice to handle the heat that they're facing. And so that's kind of what I'm trying to do over on my little IG account is encourage people as our little group of, you know, people who listen to me in the morning for a coffee, just, just try and be part of the group that is trying to do harder things, etc., etc. et cetera. So Anyone got any secret to, you know, how to crack the DNA on that one? Does anyone know how we can encourage people to more and more and more seek adversity? It's not that I'm running out of ideas, but I wouldn't mind like picking up the pace a little bit.
0: James, what do you think?
1: So I would say, because if you think about, like we said, there's two opposite effects to stress, tear each other apart or pull people together. We all served in uniforms where they created an environment for us to truly understand the why to suffer, you know, the shared suffering. And that brought most of us together. The meat grinder spat out a few people that just shouldn't be in that profession. And then if that bar was maintained and you had that cohesive group, you carried on together. I mean, you know, I I got married and my groomsmen were the firefighters of, of my you know, beloved crew that I had in California 10 years prior, they flew over, you know, that's the the brotherhood that's formed and the sisterhood. So then when you contrast that to the COVID epidemic, where the why was never really even allowed to have a platform, the why was we want people to stop dying universally. And what happened was this divisiveness rather than let's talk about, any precautions we can take when it comes to this virus but let's also talk about nutrition let's talk about time in daylight let's talk about community let's not tear people apart let's pull people together and work out how we can do that let's talk about exercise let's talk about sleep quality and reduce fear you know what i mean so when if you want to destroy a nation make the why as gray area as possible if you want to unify a group of men women and children Give them a a cause, a why that they truly understand. Make America great. What the fuck does that mean? Excuse my language. What does that mean? You know what I mean? But let's uh, take a thing that you're passionate about, that you can truly action in your own household or outside your front door. If you understand that and find a group of people that are like-minded, if we all have pockets of that, we'll truly change the world. But if we listen to some person this is a censored show, person in a suit, whether it's a blue tie or a red tie, and we let them puppet master the way we think, the way we act, then that's the polar opposite of what I've experienced on this trip and what we've experienced in our teams.
0: This is the challenge with politics in general, right? And that's why we don't really talk about politics on here, but the uh, it it the idea, that concept of the idea, the why, the uh, the message it can be subverted for many reasons, right? And so that's why it's important to, again, like we were talking about uh, on some other shows, that you keep the standard, the standard. And that why, like, that's, there's <laughs> the why for the why is that we, we have to meet on common ground. And I think that is the the key in all of these things, especially with 7X that I really loved when you told me. I didn't know that you said uh, that there were just members of the public who were able to, buy a seat because that's really intrigued me when you said, you know, firefighters and police and military. I'm like, okay, this is going to be hard for the, for them. And they're going to be like, "Mm, okay, good, good little gut check. Awesome. But you take people that have almost no experience in this and you put them through it. I'm really interested in what, how did they react to the whole situation, both during and after.
1: I would venture to guess not speaking for all of them but i know i had a lot of good conversations with a lot of them firstly i think there was a real surprise at the level of camaraderie you can achieve when you suffer together because a lot of these people um you know they are working extremely hard in the you know the corporate space but it's still it's you know it's a dollar amount it's growing it's employing more people i mean these are all goals but it's not saving lives you know so i think that when they you know when we were in this this uh this group that we were in and the stress was applied and the the through line the why was always ultimately creating two tools to stop people from suffering and dying which ultimately will be the manual and the docu series to disseminate what we've learned um it doesn't matter what your bottom line is it doesn't matter about your profit margin or whatever those are kind of superfluous to the people that were in the uniform side, our why has always been to make sure we go home, our partner and you know to the left and right goes home, and that there's the maximizer chance that whoever we're responding to protect, to rescue, they also go home as well. So I think that that was the biggest aha for a lot of them was you know that money was nothing to do with it. You don't join the military to get rich. you don't join the fire service, you certainly don't join the fire service to get rich. You know, so when when there was an intrinsic motivator rather than an extrinsic motivator, I'm I'm pretty sure that was a big aha for a lot of them. I like that. Do you think
0: it had any, do you think it might have a piece of it, at least due to the culture, like surrounding people with the uh, with others that have been through that adverse kind of moments before where they were like, ooh, you know, I've been hard. This has been hard. I've seen hard before. Let's gut check it and get through it. Do you think that helped? like helped others get through it do you think it's part of the partly the culture as well as the the connection
1: to the why i think there's definitely that element of that the, if i got this quite right this quote right the raising tide lifts all ships um i think there was definitely when you see all these different people doing things at this level running marathons starting you know starting from the airport in perth or in a little known fact in Colombia. um when we got there the colombian government had got rid of the covid restrictions from what i understand realized that there was a lot more money when the restrictions were applied put them back in so 13 of our team weren't allowed to get out of the airport they were put in quarantine and so long story short the team bought two like the really crappy home treadmills sent it to the airport and two of our guys ran an entire marathon in quarantine in the airport. So those kind of things, like this mental toughness, this the incredible levels that some of these men and women were getting to in whatever area it was. Katie running in the bomb suit in the mm-hmm. middle of the you know the the summer in the Southern Hemisphere. You know all these different areas. I think yeah, there was there was an element of these boundaries being pushed out, and then vice versa. You know I'm sure there were elements and conversations where. We, you know, a lot of people in uniform pulled a lot of things from the civilian side, too. Mm
0: -hmm. Absolutely. Sean or Seb, you got any questions or thoughts? Oh, you guys are going to have a little point match.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we are. So a couple of things that are interesting to me in what you just said there, James. My first thought was this. I didn't know that you were going to have, for lack of a better term, we'll call them corporate sponsor seats uh, involved in the expedition, which is amazing because as I see it academically uh, from a sort of a spectator perspective, both groups are going to work off of each other. One group, we'll call them the special operators for lack of a better term. They're going to They're going to show their worth. They're going to display what they're made of. And then the other group that's observing the special operators, they're going to pick up their socks as well. They're going to pull them up and they're going to try to perform in the moment, whatever that means to them as well. So you've got two very different groups that were probably drawing the best out of each other on a daily basis. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, I would say so. And especially when the environment was getting worse and worse and worse. Yeah, I mean, of course. For, people, for people listening that don't know about 7X, it's part of a year and a half longitudinal study. But the breakdown event, the shiny object was um, going to seven continents in seven days. And each continent, they did a skydive or the goal was to do a skydive, then run a marathon and then a swim. Not a, not a certain distance, just the seals, sea, air and land. Um, and it wasn't, didn't go perfectly. We didn't, and it wasn't chasing the record, but we didn't get to go to Antarctica. There was a whole load of things that went wrong and we're actually going to be returning at the end of the year to do that leg. Um, we didn't get to skydive in Australia, but apart from that, the guys ran South Africa replaced Antarctica. So that was the seventh destination. Um, so it was six skydives, seven marathons, um, and then the swims were, I think like five of them or something. So that was the goal. But the whole point was to, to break these people down. So really, it wasn't so much that everyone was reaching this elite level of performance every time. It was actually when the world is crushing you from the outside, how do you maintain your work capacity, maintain your mental aptitude, your, your emotional state? And that was a big thing. And people had breakdowns. And it was beautiful to watch. People had these, these where they just crumbled. And then they, we picked them back up and then they moved forward, you know? So I think that was it. And also from the civilian side, looking at the firefighters and the military, realizing that they're people, they're human beings. And some of them struggled and some of them, you know, did well in certain times and not so well in others. And, and like I said, we slept on a plane every night. And it was kind of, kind of funny because you had a lot of these people were very wealthy. So at the front was the kind of first class seats and it was an older plane. So it wasn't like the beautiful lay flat beds that you see today and then in the back was all the cheap seats but actually they'd figured out a way of laying mattresses along the back so we had actually had the best seats in the back being the paupers because the ones in the front didn't go all the way flat so i think it, you know without it being deliberate a lot of our vips experienced some suffering some some discomfort Good. for days on maybe, the, maybe days not on enough
2: <laughs> so the the next thing that i thought was and this is my final point it's awesome that there were VIP seats there, for lack of a better term, because arguably, this is just my opinion, I could be way off base, but arguably, I feel that they'll have a way bigger impact than any of the special operators in the back, in the sense of if a special operator puts up yet another photo of yet another parachute jump over yet another piece of ground, it's, I'm not saying it's, it's yawnerific, I'm not saying that. What it is, is less impactful than when a CEO, as an example, we'll call it a VIP seat, like staggers into his office tower, 33rd floor, calls in the conference room and says, you're just not going to believe what I just went through. Here's what I learned. Here's what I want to start executing against. And by the way, let's make a donation to dot, dot, dot. And so that one individual is maybe implementing change within a massive institution, or at least a large organization that has ripple on effects that no one will ever see for years, perhaps. Whereas an individual special operator, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll impact his social media feed to some degree and the stories will spread out a a little bit, but not like they spread out in an office tower, uh, if that makes sense. And by the end of the day, Within that office towers, everyone hears that CEO's story, again, for lack of a better term. It's being talked about at the at the family dinner table by employees who are then telling their neighbor, you're not going to believe what Jim, our CEO, did or saw or talked about in the board meeting this morning. And the reason I say that is because in my world or in our world, hardcore, mega freaky things aren't that big of a deal. But in the corporate world, when things get freaky, everyone's talking about it. So there may have been a bigger impact on that end than there was on the, uh, we'll call it, uh, military, Leo, etc.
0: Yeah, it's the uh, the water cooler to the dinner table, right? Correct. And that is, uh, there's so much information that gets passed on through those two places that. Uh, it's not accounted for quite as much. So, it. yeah, I, this is super cool. What, what uh, do you think, James? Do you think, do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Definitely. So, I agree 100%. Um, I'll give you just another. There's so many examples, but another example, uh, Shay Eskew, one of my friends who is a, an elite triathlete, he was horrendously burned. I forget exactly what age, at five, six, seven, eight, right around there. Um, there was a swarm of bees. A neighbor figured the best way was to throw gas at the bees. Ended up over Shea, there was an ignition source, and he got really badly burned. And to this day, like so many people that are burn injured, he's still having surgeries to to kind of undo the damage because everything that they graft it has no pliability. So it can affect their hearing, their jaw, their movement, etc. And Shay ran um all seven marathons again. Um And the last marathon, unbeknownst to us, like, I think I found this out like day five, six, maybe, that he had torn both meniscus, I believe, one or or both meniscus, and was about to have surgery. had it scheduled like two days after we got back. So he's running seven marathons back to back with a torn meniscus, you know, burn injured um, survivor initially. And it gets to the point where he can't even run. So there's a thing called katsu, blood flow restriction. He was ending up getting some massage, getting the katsu on, and that would buy him three miles. And then he'd stop, we'd have to do these all this treatment again. He'd run three miles. I got to run the last three with him, which is amazing. And seven marathons in, he still outpaced me. Just so humbling. But imagine being one of those, you know, as you said, the, the corporate side watching this human who's endured so much adversity, who's mindset and his his emotional state his outlook was always phenomenal not only has he got all these you know challenges with the burns but now he's got this tall meniscus and you can see that he can barely even walk anymore and he just does these treatments addresses it and his his, his thing was well i'm gonna get surgery anyway i might as well just earn it now yeah, so sure, yeah, that's just just, burn it right out yeah yeah so so that imagine watching shay eskew run a race and you question the, the the hardness of your life and then, like i said you can't compare traumas and we've had these conversations before but you can use inspiration from people like mark ormrod Agreed. who's another phenomenal human being and just kind of turn that one more click on that bad day we don't want to get out you remember shay and you're like i'll run one mile slowly i'll get i'll, I'll do something more than i was gonna do so there's no question in my mind that there was cross-pollination in both in both ways. Thanks. That is outstanding. <laughs>
0: Again, we could just end end it right here. Boom. 20, 24 <laughs> minutes, call it a day. Um, Seb, or Seb, you got any questions? I saw you taking a bunch of notes.
3: Yeah, I was taking some notes. There's a lot of good stuff in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I won't address all of this, but it was just for my own sort of research following this. But, um, you know, uh, Really, really cool. I think it'd be very interesting to tap into the, the special operators and the and the first responders and the people that are kind of used to this and see if being surrounded by people by normal people, quote unquote, everybody's a normal person, but you know, from from the with not the same level of training with the same level of inoculation and 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 and, and there, I guarantee you there's been a, an incredible amount of respect that was gained there by seeing these people go through. and I think what happens sometimes in the elite unit or even in in the first response world is we get to think that we're the, we're it you know kind of thing and everybody who isn't us, isn't at that level, or isn't capable of, or or has decided not to, and somehow we get really cynical, sometimes even nihilistic in our approach, and 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 if judgmental to a certain extent, to the point of elitism, right? And so, if you're if you're if you get to the point of elitism, thinking that everybody else has never done anything anything hard, that anybody else's hardship is nothing compared to yours, and all this good stuff or bad stuff, I should say, um, you know, it's important to have a lens change. And I think that I would be very curious to see what some of those operators that perhaps are very cynical about what hardship people are willing to endure in the context of a regular life and uh, and and see how it affected their their perception. And I think this ties right into one of the biggest problems that we have in the first response world is basically associating everything you do to the job, which ends up defining you. And now as soon as you lose this You're dealing with the ramifications of having let the job define you. And now you're fighting an uphill battle. Whereas it's encouraged for people to have friends outside the circle, to have friends outside the circle of trust, so to speak, and really to be able to connect with other humans along the way that are not in your field of endeavors that are bringing a different different lens to, to life. And this, again, just I'll wrap up with this this Stanford university where they had all these people, you know, like-minded individuals and they're testing, they had a, an elevated combined IQ. So a much higher combined IQ in, in group a and a lower combined IQ in group B. And they gave them problems to solve. And they realized that where there was diversity of thoughts and diversity of background, they were actually problem solving more effectively than people that were smarter, but all from the same kind of walks of life. So the 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 actual benefits of, of surrounding yourself with people outside of your circle and having the, also some solid relationship with the people within your circle is are undeniable.
0: Yeah. Do you, do you, James? Do you have any insight on some of the operators that came out of that? Do you think, uh, or have you talked to them at all about that particular thought?
1: I. I've yet to have like a full all of us conversation again. When we first got back, we were in Dallas for two days before we all went our separate ways. And I can tell you now people were so exhausted. Like there was a big party the first day. Like one of the VIPs has this beautiful, giant, giant home um, the day after we got there and a bunch of people went out and I was like, nope, I'm going to bed. I I understand sleep deprivation more than most. so, So I haven't really pulled it from that so much but it's the i'll tell you what's really been amazing is that community that we've built there's a there's a you know a message thread on slack i think it is or one of those signal um and all the operators the vip everyone is constantly doing this someone will do something that, oh my god i'm in town let's meet up and they're meeting up for coffee and then someone else just got there. Um, solo skydiving license and everyone is supporting them so that's what i'm seeing it's not i haven't really heard from the uniform side like here's what we learned from everyone but it's more i think my observation at the moment is they consider themselves a community like you said it's Mm. not what you don't understand i was a firefighter you'll never know what i went through it's like we all were human beings that experienced this we all had this purpose to solve this issue we're all a tribe so I think that's the one thing I've witnessed so far
0: like a like a shared vulnerability not so much even the hardship but just being putting yourself in that vulnerable vulnerable position
2: continually
0: Absolutely.
1: well that, yeah, that's that, what I'm saying as I well I think with... it
0: takes more than that
2: though I, I do think it takes more than that mm-hmm. at least it would take more than that for me <clears throat> if I load onto a plane where everyone's being super vulnerable I'm looking for another plane. (laughs) I'm just saying, just to make the point. And so it takes more than just vulnerability. It takes shared hardship. It takes people being vulnerable. It takes people breaking down. It takes blood, sweat, and tears for humans to bond. You don't bond if you all bought a ticket to the same rock concert and you don't know the person next to you. That ain't bonding that's just standing in the same space. Bonding requires more than just a thing. It requires a bunch of things. And some of those things, we don't even know what they are. It's like at a deeply energetic level, perhaps. Maybe it's at just a vibe level. Maybe it's at a smell level. It doesn't matter what it is. There's things that we bond on that we don't even understand. So for me, it takes more than just Oh, it's a plane full of vulnerable people. Awesome. <laughs> it's a that's long not, flight.
0: That's not quite what I meant, but yes. I know. I'm making <laughs> yeah, yeah, it you know, oh, right. all one you're dimensional. Absolutely, you're <laughs> absolutely right. And I was, I, lo- I love the way you put it there blood, sweat, and tears, because you can share blood with somebody and be completely separate. You can share sweat with somebody. I mean, how many people run marathons with other people all the time? They don't have a bond. You can swear, you can share tears with somebody. Great. And in five minutes, you don't really know them anymore. But if you share all three of those things, or you share three of those things plus the energy, plus the blah blah, and all of these other things, it just it adds depth of connection. At least that's That's what I was going for.
1: So what I wanted to add was, and it was funny because Sean actually underlined the very point. When I think of the whole seek discomfort movement that's happening at the moment. What you're seeing is a lot of videos of people from special operations background putting civilians through ice baths and spraying them in the face with a hose. So if I go on a plane with no vulnerability and ice and hoses, I'm getting off that plane too, because you're not going to learn anything that way. So you have to have, as you said, that combined element. You can't just scream at someone and pretend they're in buds for a day and be like, all right, now you learned a whole bunch of stuff. (laughs) you got to talk about the holistic experience the shared suffering. But like you said, what we need and what we're missing so much now is that shared vulnerability as well. And you can only, I think the difference is to, to be vulnerable, you have to have trust to get that trust. You have to have suffered together. And I think that maybe be the missing piece. I like that trust,
0: trust and suffering and vulnerability. I love that. That is outstanding. Well, maybe um, you don't show up with trust, but through
2: shared suffering and adversity, that's where it gets built. Exactly.
0: Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, Man, again, there's so many of these, like we've had, what, four mic drop moments now since we started? <laughs> well, they're all James. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. And I guess maybe you should teach him as your little, low. Uh, I don't have a move. I don't want to move. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, um, yeah, the one question I had for you, James, myself, was what do you think, what was your biggest lesson for yourself the one thing that you're going to come away with to either better yourself or better your concept of suffering or what was it for you that you took away
1: i think i mean this is this is not the direction that you're probably expecting this answer to be but i have to say um because the other things doing what I do for so long, I already knew that there was going to be community and see you know, I kind of anticipated and it was just more verification of these things. I was definitely amazed at the community, like we said, of the non-uniform side of the plane. And that really blew me away. So that was one big thing. But another thing, and maybe people listening to this can relate to this, I I would like to think for some reason. And I think when I look back at my childhood, maybe it's from trauma, but I was kind of a, a meek child. I was a little bit scared. I was when I look back and think of the classic term of anxiety, I developed this anxiety. Um, and then I go into the fire service and, you know, do 14 years of pretty, pretty busy departments in pretty um, rough areas of town, apart from the last one. And as I've transitioned out, I told my wife, I'm like, I feel like nothing even elevates my heart rate anymore. And it used to be even at the end of the fire service, like it would have to be, I would have to fight to the door and then just be in a wall of flame, to even feel like you call it a fire. Um, and so when we went to uh, Cairo, we had the opportunity to skydive. Now I'd done skydiving once and I'm talking about being strapped to a dude, like a baby Bjorn. I mean, not like a real skydiver. Mm-hmm. And the first time I did it pre fire service, this, this nerves was still here. I hadn't even entered the fire service yet. And I, emotionally and physically pooped myself in a mcdonald's bathroom prior i was that scared now don't get me wrong when i landed i loved it and was ready to go do it again but the fear of that psychological side i was almost crippled with fear fast forward of life in the fire service sleep deprivation and constant stress and you know exposure to a lot of things that should scare you quote unquote the when you skydive as you all know, the plane is moving at 100 and whatever miles an hour. And it's that drop that I used to hate. So when I jumped, I realized, oh, I'm just kind of gliding. There's not a drop. Well, this time we jumped out of a Russian helicopter over the pyramids and it was hovering. So there was no glide. In the was- tumble. Yes, it was straight down. And I watched people. And so I'm like, all right, so let- this is going to be a great scientific test. If I get an adrenal response then i know i'm just you know i'm wrong with how i'm thinking we went out straight down zero so what we term as adrenal fatigue the physiological lesson that i took away was that is absolutely a real thing because if nothing else dropping out of a helicopter strapped to a polish dude that doesn't speak english that forgot <laughs> your glasses <laughs> That should scare you a little bit. You should have a little whoa, stomach in the throat kind of thing. Zero, nothing. It was like I was sitting here. So that was a real experience. So, I mean, all the takeaways that we talked about absolutely are brought. But that was a, you don't often get to test your adrenal response. But I got to do that. And I'm like, okay, that's definitely a physiological side effect of 14 years of the fire
3: service. I'd be curious to, and this is at the not even at the hypothesis level, but uh, I'd be curious to look into what percentage of this had to do with your domestication of the fear of death. You know, when I and I call it like this respectfully. I mean, we don't totally, you know, get comfortable with it. But at the end of the day, there is an acceptance that has to come in order for us to do the things that we need to be doing and focus focusing on the steps that we need to be taken, regardless of consequences or the perception of consequences. And so. A lot of us in the first response, wor- in the first response world, and in the military world, have to make peace with that. This is a very possible outcome, and uh, it, it is what it is. Right now, I'm problem solving this, and whatever. When I no longer can problem solve things, then I'll worry about it. <laughs> you know, kind of deal. So I'd be very curious to see what percentage of this is also related to you having sort of made peace with with death. And once you've done that, I mean, what's left? What's left to get your heart rate elevated? I know for me it's worked wonders during my career. So
2: I'll tell you what'll raise your heart rate is going from the Cairo International Airport to downtown Cairo at about midnight in a taxi, guy wearing no sandals, just his big old flippity flop feet, and and speeding through traffic. Did you get to go through from the airport into town? James, no, but it's we went from a freaking you. gong show. It's the, it's the most gong of all gong shows of traffic that I've ever been anywhere in the world. It, it was bananas. So, you know, that might raise your heart rate a little bit.
1: Well, we were in a um, bus navigating it, and I saw the craziness. But here's what actually I'll tell you what made me uncomfortable. Again, fear is not really the right word. But we went from this beautiful pseudo-tourist experience, and then we went to a boat ride on the Nile, and all of a sudden, like the way we were received seemed to be very, very hostile. So from there yeah, right. yeah. to the airport, to wheels up, there I saw the other side. I wouldn't say yeah. it was friendly or welcoming at all. So it wasn't so much the the driving, but the thought that at any one point, someone can click their fingers and we could be having a really bad day. So that that unnerved yeah, yeah. me a little bit. I'll be honest about that side.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, on the HPA axis or the hypothalamus uh, pituitary adrenal axis, to your point, adrenal fatigue, one of the reasons that I started studying the HPA axis and trying to figure out ways to manipulate it or improve it, etc., is because just like yourself, James, I felt that I had some uh, adrenal burnout just from the various things that I've done over the years. And so there are ways to improve or work around those kind of issues. I'm sure you're very familiar with them by now. If if you've kind of got this working theory of you have some adrenal burnout, you have looked into that, right? HPA axis, et cetera.
1: Yes, somewhat, but I'm I'm all ears. Please educate Okay, me.
2: well, I mean, I'm not going to be able to drop any magical pro tips like uh, I'm going to solve anything uh, today. But you know, the HPA axis is fascinating, and to your point, as you already know, one of the biggest culprits for trashing the HPA is uh, sleep, but not just uh, quantity, but quality. And uh, again, anyone who doesn't have an Aura ring or some sort of sleep tracking device. Um, if, you, if you don't have anything at all for tracking your sleep, for deep or REM or light or awake, uh, interruptions, oxygen uptake, all of these various HRV-ish things, you can go onto YouTube. I believe the YouTube channel is The Quantified Scientist. He's actually a data sleep scientist who takes a whole pile of different devices to include the Oura Ring, the Whoop, the Apple, the this, the that, the other thing and uh, compares them in a very science-minded perspective and will basically let you know what kind of options would work perhaps for you for the outcome that you're seeking based on your budget. So the quantified scientist on uh, YouTube, uh, you'll find it. So get some form of device to track your sleep quality so that you can then start manipulating your deep and REM within your within your night's sleep. And that might mean, as I said, a a couple of other days ago on my live IG, you've got to consider like THC and CBD and how that impacts your sleep. You've got to consider, uh, food, how close to bed and hydration, how close to bed and blah, blah, all of these various things. And academically, if you study your HPA axis and think, okay, I see seven things that I can do that are going to improve me. Well, it's all guesswork until you start collecting data. And forming trends and then working against those trends. So do you have a device that you can
1: track your sleep quality uh, uh, with? So I'm going to totally devil's advocate you right now. So I had, uh... and and
2: let me, let me jump in front of it. (laughs) Let me guess what it's going to (laughs) be. Let me see if I've heard this counter conversation before. Is it because when you track yourself, you're because not that you get obsessed with what it is, but the score, if it says a 12 instead of a 107, you think, oh, no, that's my day ruined. Or do you feel that the data set as you observe it on a daily puts you off feeling how you want to feel? Does that make sense?
1: It does. And that's definitely a thing that I've heard. I don't normally wear wearables, but I think they're amazing. I watched my wife. You know, she absolutely is inspired by the data, the steps, all those things. I think it's phenomenal, but I had a guy on professor Russell Foster, and he's the man who he and his team discovered the chrono receptors in the retina. So up to that point, his world, the uh, neuroscience and ophthalmology world swore up and down. There was rods, cones, and that was it. And how dare you suggest there's a receptor that we haven't discovered. And there was, and he proved it. And in a series of, uh, of different experiments. And so, um, He's the one, you know, when you hear Huberman talking about, you know, looking at the light in the morning is actually his work. I've never heard him credited for this. Just a little oh, side point there. But anyway, but um, mm. when in our conversation and I'm going to get him back on, he's amazing. But he was saying that a lot of people don't understand that even the EEGs, the 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 sensors all over the head still really aren't very good they're not actually great science so even though the wearables are great for certain things hrv great example he said when they're making these claims that it can say you were in this you know rem sleep for here and and this sleep for that he said actually there's nothing proven that you can't do that from the uh i forget the term now but the way that the aura even gets the data from the body um so that's a just a cautionary thing is that people do get obsessed. Yeah. And that is a thing and that creates anxiety, but also you know that you're asleep, but it truly does not have the capacity to actually say you are in REM sleep here. It's kind of guessing at best. So even if the EEGs aren't a gold standard, so that's the reason why I don't the best metric of a good night's sleep is how you feel the next day.
2: Bam. Good man. So that was my next point. So hundred percent you're right. And this device is worth nothing unless you use it correctly. And by correctly, mm-hmm. I mean you have to form a trend over a timeline that you can trust. And by timeline, I mean like several months of observing your sleep every night and not just saying, oh, the ring told me I, sl- I slept like that. Guess it's smart. And that <laughs> that isn't what this ring is. This ring isn't smart. It's an inanimate object that captures physiological data that then has to be interpreted by the human. Now the ring comes with software and the the software can give you sort of an indication of what you may or may not have experienced while you were sleeping. But at the end of the day, it's dumb. There's only one smart person in the room and it's the smart person wearing it. And if you're not being smart about it, then the ring, you might as well put it in the garbage can. You've got to observe what the ring is telling you. And then over time, trend it out to see if, if you're synchronizing up with what it's telling you. If it tells you you're getting sick and then you get sick, okay, now it knows when I'm going to get sick, maybe in the future. If it tells you you had an amazing sleep and you wake up in the morning, you're like, I had a crap sleep. I feel like crap. Well, maybe it's, it's for all of us to determine the data, form the trend, and then moving forward, consider it as a another feed another variable that enters into our life throughout the day to give us a sense of how we're doing. Yeah. Seb?
3: I'm going to throw another curveball in there. So today, Ooh, co- like co- coincidentally, today I was listening to Uberman Lab and it's called Leverage Dopamine to Overcome Procrastination and Optimize Effort. And in there, at about an hour and a half, it, it, it might be a little bit uh, later, it's actually episode number 117 of the Uberman podcast. And he says, and I quote, Adrenal burnout does not exist. It is a fallacy. It does not exist. And so I, I'm certainly not standing here able to articulate what he, what he meant, but I'm just bringing it up for everybody's attention. Like, have a look, listen, if it makes any sense. And Sean, you'll have the critical analysis about ability to, to to listen to this and kind of make mm-hmm. maybe better sense of it. and well, articulate I, I agree.
2: It. I agree yeah. with what you just said. And okay. I agree cool. with it as he has categorized it. Gotcha. I feel that there is no such thing. Mm-hmm. as adrenal burnout, mm-hmm. as it's understood or as it's loosely referred to in society as this catchphrase of, I'm a little tired and I don't understand what's going on. I believe that the adrenals don't burn out to the point where they stop functioning. What mm-hmm. I do believe is that adrenals don't perform as they should prior to getting quote-unquote burned out. And so it's a, it's a loose term that I threw out casually because it's a common reference term. But I agree with Huberman. There's no such thing as straight up hard science. They're burned out, if -hmm. that makes sense.
1: Well, it's like it's like the testes, though. We know that a lot of people in the show listening have diminished levels of testosterone. Their Mm -hmm. testes are still Mm -hmm. working, but are they working at the rate that we need to? No. So it's kind of semantics. And the other thing, I mean, I think that Dr. Huberman is great. And actually, he was supposed to be kind of my show and then decided he wasn't going to. But. The other thing that I find interesting, just from the outside looking in, is you had someone whose field of expertise is here. And now all of a sudden, they're an expert on the mm. entire holistic wellness subject. And that I'm in always a little audience. bit like,
3: well, yeah, so. in, all, in all fairness, he's, he's cited at least six people this morning in that podcast and, and <laughs> their work. And, and I don't know if the, the person that you were talking about earlier was cited, uh, James, but I'm hoping it's the case. And I'm hoping that because there's a lot of crossovers. There's a lot of crossovers between those fields. So yeah, I'm
0: outside of the, uh, you know, hold on a second, Sean, hold on a second. We've, we've, I think, crossed into an entirely different branch than what we should be talking about as to, I don't think we need, well, I don't think we need to critically analyze multiple other podcasts when we're actually here to talk to James about the 7x project. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) I didn't know we're talking about that. No, no, no. I just, we were here. So I have a question for James.
2: yeah. If if you if you were on 7X, was was there um, or of course you were, were you observing how people were collecting data?
1: I like that. So I think if I can speak for everyone that's on there, initially this was seen as a data mining, you know, operation. This this was we're gonna start here, we're gonna collate all this data. Ultimately, I think everyone knows what the answers are. Like we know through other people's work. Again, this is the point: not masquerading as an expert. There's lots of people whose body of work is sleep. You know, whatever it is, the adrenal gland, whatever. And and that's that's who you use as your as your subject matter experts. Then you apply it to these people. Um, so. I would say my observation is that we went into it with a data mind, and the real takeaway actually came through story. So, yes, there was sleep, nutrition, movement, daylight, circadian rhythm, you know, community, tribe, loss, etc. But the manual, I don't know what it's going to look like so much yet. It's being created now, but the docu series, I can tell you, is going to be compelling because it's not going to be all right now on this spreadsheet, you can see. That this figure here, figure A, if you look at figure, B, you know what I mean. It's not. That's not engaging at all. But talking about the journey of these people and, and you know what they had, and then you know applying what nutrition worked, what supplements worked, you know what didn't work, you know what what do people try and it made no difference whatsoever. Um, so I think that's the thing that I'm excited about. The data is out there. That none of us are reinventing the wheel. Going on a plane for seven days around the world is not going to smash the limits of science. But what it is, is you're exposing all these human beings to all these different factors. And if you were going to do a quote-unquote study, you'd keep everything completely... Um, sterile is the wrong word, but... but um, uh, N-A-B other-
2: comparison, yeah.
1: Consistent. Yeah, every, exactly. There'd be consistency in all parameters except one that you're actually studying. And then you'd have a control group that's going around the world, you know, with on in a bed or not around the world or whatever. So there was none of that. So it wasn't a study... Um, but it was a way of just throwing all these things at these people, breaking them down. And then, like I said, the Katsu example, in the blood flow restriction worked incredibly well for Shay's knee. And we were able to do that. The Norma tech, each night that the guys were using, you know, the Doc Parsley sleep remedy that we were using every single think about a different continent every night. The circadian just murdering that was going on in our brains. So using that to try and initiate the sleep cascade to get us to go to sleep, and that worked incredibly well. I want to say shout out to Doc Parsley for that. So those are the takeaways on, on what's working, but I think it's really the storytelling. Like the book that I wrote, rather than just say, hey, you need to sleep, hey, you can heal back injuries, hey, you know, obesity is bad, you you tell a story, and then you weave in the facts into it. So I'm hoping that the back end of this, there's going to be a compelling docuseries and a manual that will be a great kind of how to take away to enter in our profession to stay healthy in our profession and transition out healthily as well well i agree with the storytelling because
2: just using the norma tech as an example um i was the first person that i knew to buy a, a norma tech well, about 16 years ago or whatever it was when they were just a mom and pop company And they were like a secret sauce kind of tool. I I learned about it through a a little side conversation, talked to the CEO, got a set of Norma Tech, and really didn't talk too much about it because he'd asked me to not talk about it. But then I started talking about it a few years later. You know, I thought it was a good tool to get out there into the community. And so I could have chosen to like take a photo of it, put up a data screen and say, buy one, and then bounced. Or I could do what I do do, which is tell a few stories about something that has worked for me. And it's the stories that gain the traction. People that have bought Normatex or compression uh, leg units or whatever have bought them not because they looked at a uh, PowerPoint slide. They bought it because I just told a simple story about it on how effective it was. So... I think that it's key as you said that the story is told based on people who have got uh respected careers per se and that others out there who who are looking for ways to do things better can tie high performance individuals to tools that they use on the regular basis to improve them and think well if it works for them it'll work for me as long as the story's told
0: correctly. Yeah absolutely the um I I do have one other question for you as well about the, um, the rest of seven X here was what do you think the biggest failure you had was? I really wanted to find this out because you said there was a bunch along the way and, but I wanted to know what, what do you think yours was specifically?
1: Mine was when we got back because I had been very diligent at tapering off my drinking And when I, I, I drink frequently, but small amounts. And so when we talk about sleep, if I'm going to truly understand and own my sleep, as Sean talked about, you have to think about what did you drink the night before? So it might be two glasses of wine. It's still going to disrupt my sleep. And from 14 years of not sleeping, there's an ownership element. So I had actually got myself to a good place. I think um, the months prior had been like months at a time. I hadn't had anything, and then maybe had a, you know a little bit for a few days, and then tapered off again. But then when I got back, sleep deprived, broken down, I went back into that again. And just like I said, habitual—you know, two or three glasses, but every night for you know a week, two weeks. So that was that was the big failure for me was slipping back into that less disciplined state that I think so many of us find ourselves when we're on shift and by replicating it through seven X, I found myself almost like I was back on shift.
0: Hmm. Seb or, uh, or Sean, any other questions or thoughts or
2: anything? Yeah. I I'm curious when you were pouring a drink uh, that first time, I mean, you could consider that first drink when you come back from seven X's call it, you know, celebrating or whatever, but at some point, the third drink or four nights later or whatever, you realize the pattern and you're like, yeah, this is no bueno. Uh, at what point do you draw down on a lesson from seven X or do you just shrug your shoulders and think, yeah, that doesn't apply to me. Or what was your thought process on, on that?
1: It, for me, I think it's the fairy tale of down regulation and it's oh, right. not, yeah. you know what I mean? I don't, I never, ever drown my sorrows. I've never had issues with, nightmares or any of that stuff i've been so lucky and again just accidentally the bad things that happened when i was young were equally if not more offset by the good things you know i I had uh, i was in a house fire when i was four my we almost got crushed by a wall uh, when i was about 11 that fell and crushed every car except ours and we're driving away from this place my parents had a pretty awful divorce all some pretty crappy things but then I grew up on a farm. I had a family of five siblings. We ate around the dinner table almost every night. We talked, we laughed, you know, I had animals around me. My dad was a healer. He was a veterinary surgeon. I was on a farm. So I had daylight. I had, you know, autonomy, all these things. So that offset. So it's not like I'm trying to bury something like genuinely hand on heart, but it's, it's habitual. And I slip back into that unconscious habit where well, you know, I'll just have one. I'll just, I'll just have a, you know, a glass. It's, it's fine. And instead of going, why? And the next morning, I will tell you, hands on my heart, every morning, why did I drink last night? And oh, I've right, never yeah. woken up when I haven't drunk and said, man, I wish I drank last night. Not yeah, right. in my life. <laughs> yeah, no, that's <laughs> that's
2: super powerful. That's mega awesome. <laughs>
1: so, and I'm back there now. I'm back on the sobriety again. But you know, it was like looking back, I was like, why? And then, what is it about that extreme ownership? Oh, you just don't. Yeah, but. You know what is it about each and every one of us that makes us so strong sometimes and yet so weak other times?
0: That is a very good question. Sounds Dude, like a stop <laughs> dropping the truth bombs. <laughs> <laughs> that could be a whole podcast in and of itself, right? Why why can we be strong in one area and not others, or at one time and not other times? That's a that's outstanding. Now we're just about at time here, so I'm wondering any final thoughts? Anything we got, uh, Seb? Any final thoughts on what's uh, been talked about today?
3: No, man. Just well, I, I should say yes. Find find the right group and do something purposeful that's hard, and 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 go experience this if you if you at all can. I think it's a gift to humanity. We we it should be mandatory. You know, I write a write of passage, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Outstanding,
0: James. Any uh, any final thoughts?
1: Yeah, I just want to backtrack. Make sure I'm not misunderstood. I think the human podcast is fantastic but like we talked about with the wearables sometimes people can get consumed by absolutes and if you come on and you say i'm an expert in this and this is what you shouldn't do you just have to take a step back and just like they say you want to learn about something read three books not one so mm-hmm. you know like i said cite the sources make sure if if someone is talking about a thing find find the art you know the actual expert in that area dive into their work get some context Because there's a lot of people out there disseminating great information, but there's also that element of, I've got to keep making content. If you're constantly talking about, I mean, it's a dilution factor. You can't be an expert at a thousand things. So all I'm saying is, you know, cross-reference with some other things before you take it as gospel. It's a great podcast. I listen to it myself, but you know, none none of us can be an expert in a thousand things. That's all I'm saying.
3: Agreed. A hundred
0: percent. Except Sean. No, I'm
1: just kidding. <laughs> yeah. If, if, if
2: 1,000 equals one.
0: Yeah. Because I'm,
2: I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert in anything. No. So um, I would like to follow up with what Seb said, and that is 7X is a book holder, call it what you will, to once a year do something hard, do something 7X-ish. It doesn't have to be jumping over the pyramids. So that would be
3: rad. Although that's cool. It <laughs> that would be rad, yeah. Come on. It's
2: ridiculous. Uh, so 7X, go do something hard. And not just hard, something notable. And those, those two things aren't identical. And it should be hard enough and notable enough that it'll carry you through a year or the rest of your life. If you only do it once, you can always draw down on that. It'll never be as hard as jumping over the pyramids in a spiraling death fall out of a <laughs> helicopter. So go find something that really leaves a mark on you so that you can always kind of fall back on that. That ah, can't be any harder than that. It can't be any crazier than that. It can't be any freakier than that. Do
0: hard things. Yeah. Absolutely. and I, I love the fact uh, what you're saying, James and Sean and Seb, everybody here, is it can't just be uh, you can't just accept one view of things, right? Same thing with the, with the podcast. you learn you listen to something, you hear it from here, you hear it from us and you're like, wow, that sounds really cool. That sounds interesting. I'm going to go look into that. Cool, do that. but look into it from a multiple multitude of sources. Right. Same thing with the uh, the aura ring, right, Sean? You were saying that uh, you know you can't just rely on the software. You have to build a trend. You have to build a expansion of knowledge, and that is what we do here. We expand what we know by learning. We build upon what we have known over time, and we grow as people every day here on the collective. So we'll see y'all tomorrow, Chemo. Chemo.